If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark. Mark chapter 10 will be in verses 46 through 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Blind Man Who Had 2020 Vision. The Blind Man Who Had 2020 Vision. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your word is beautiful and it's true. This isn't a fable. This isn't a story created out of the imagination of a human writer. That this really happened in real time and space and Mark, and Matthew, and Luke, and John, they have validated these truths, and they have been led by your Spirit, and have written these truths. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to approach your word as if it is what it really is, and that's truth, truth recorded from the very hand of God, truth that is for our own life and godliness, truth that reorients our lives around what you have left for us to know about you, about your son, about these pictures of good faith that we can lay hold of and believe. Would you forgive us of our sins? We know that they are many and bless the reading and preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen Keller, who was legally blind, she is known for a statement, and she says that it's possible or it's better to be blind and yet to be able to see than it is to have two eyes and to see nothing at all. When we were, uh, when our daughter was born, uh, a woman who was at our church, her name was Cecil, she gave us a recording, a, a CD with little lullabies on it that we would put in our uh, radio and play. Uh, and one of the songs was, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. And it's really simple, but I remember praying that over my daughter and wanting the Lord to do more than just let her see me more than just have her have physical sight. I wanted the Lord to open the eyes of her heart that she would see him 
that Jesus would become beautiful and precious. That Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, when he uh, saw the resurrected Jesus, he says, I will not believe unless I see. And Jesus shows him his hands and his wounds. And he says, now I believe. And, and Jesus says something to Thomas. He says, are, are you blessed because you see me? He says, I tell you who is blessed. Blessed are those who don't see me. And they believe. And right now, that's where we live. We don't see Jesus. He's not right here in the flesh amongst us. And yet he's real. We could say that, that, that what, the body, what the eyes are to the body, that's what faith is to the soul. That the man in our passage, if you were to take him to an optometrist's office, he would fail. That Snellen diagram that they put up with all the letters that get increasingly smaller, this guy would go and he would fail. But make no mistake about it, he has 20-20 vision. He sees Jesus and he recognizes Jesus in this passage. And it's not with physical eyes. His heart sees the Lord of glory. And maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with faith. What is it? It's important. It's a theme all in the Bible. And isn't it like Jesus to use a man who cannot physically see him to teach those who can physically see about faith? You see, that's what I think is going on. We're given a model of faith in this passage, and it comes from the most unlikeliest person. And so what I want us to do is to look under this. I want us to unpack faith through four different ways this morning. And the first thing I want, I want you to write, if you're writing notes, is real barriers can be real bridges to faith. Real barriers can actually serve as bridges to faith. Now, Mark uh, tells us where Jesus is. Jesus, it says that they're now in Jericho. Jericho is about 18 miles from Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on his journey to the cross. And here we get, it's kind of this last little pit stop before he gets to Jerusalem. And we're in the city of Jericho. As Jesus is leaving Jericho, this man is there. Now, that ought to... Jericho is a famous place. One, in, in Luke chapter 10, that, that Jesus tells us that the parable of the Good Samaritan, he tells that, that parable as this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. So right, right there, something ought to go off in your mind. It's also the same place where Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, who was a rich tax collector. Where did Jesus meet this rich tax collector? In Jericho. But if you have your Old Testament hat on, then you know that, that Jericho is the first city that the people of Israel spied out when they were coming into the promised land. And you might remember the story in Joshua where the, Joshua sends out spies to go camp out, and the first city he comes to is Jericho. And there's this wall, it's a fortified city. 
and they go out to spy out the land. And when they get into Jericho, that, 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 that word about the Lord's power over Pharaoh had sort of spread. And so when they got there, they met a, a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And, and, and Rahab hid these men, hid the spies in her home, and she made a promise. She says, hey, will you promise me that when, when you come back, that you will treat me kindly? She says, our hearts have melted over all that we have heard about your God. And, and I believe, and so will you treat me kindly? And they made a covenant with her. That says, hey, we will treat you kindly. You and your whole household, only you must come inside of your home. You must hang this scarlet rope out of your, out of your home, and we will pass over. We will not harm you. But if you don't do that, your blood is on your hand. And we know what happened. The Lord gave Jericho to the people of Israel. And after Jericho was plundered, God says, whoever rebuilds this city will do so at the cost of their firstborn son. And when you get to 1 Kings, a man really tried to rebuild the city, or he did rebuild it. And he lost his firstborn son when he started to lay the foundation. And he lost his youngest son when he started to rebuild the gate. Now, fast forward to 30 B.C., 30 years before Jesus is born. And that city was owned by Cleopatra. She took her own life. Caesar Augustus gave that city to Herod, Daddy Herod. And what did Daddy Herod do with the Jericho that he inherited? He rebuilt it. He built himself two palaces in Jericho. He built an Olympic-sized swimming pool in Jericho. He built a hippodrome where races, horse racing can happen in Jericho. And why would he do it? Because it's one, it's 18 miles away from Jerusalem, but it sits there right on the middle of this climatic change. In other words, if you were in Jericho, it would rain seven inches a year as opposed to upwards of 30 inches a year in Jerusalem. The average temperature in Jerusalem was around 66 degrees. In Jericho, it was 75. And so it became this oasis, this wealthy city where wealthy people would go that was also close to Jerusalem. And as a little historical fact, one of Herod's own sons died in a swimming pool in Jericho. It's as if God is saying, no, I'm going to keep my word there. But if you're a beggar, and this is a wealthy city, it's where kings go to play, doesn't that seem like the opportune place to beg? And that's what's happening in our passage. We meet a man in this city who's blind, who's also begging. Now, when we think about blindness, uh, I don't want you to think about what it means to be blind in America right now. I want you to think about what it would have meant to be blind back then. Some of you passed right on 55, and you passed the Mississippi School for the Blind and the Deaf. That school was started in 1848, 
with almost $3,000 from our state legislature. Right now, there are about 200 students enrolled. If you're blind or deaf, you can go and get an education that's tailored towards you. That Daddy Bush in 1991, who was president, he signed into effect the American Disability Act, 1991, that was patterned after the Civil Rights Act. And you want to know why that act is so important? Because it forbids people with disability to be discriminated against around employment, around transportation, around economics, around education. I was at Jackson State when our buildings failed ADA compliance. And you know what the university had to do? They had to make wider ramps for the disabled. They had to under the threat of losing federal funding. Right now, there's a real case between a man by the last name of Robles, and he's filed suit against Domino's Pizza. And you know what his suit is around? As a blind man, I cannot order pizza either through your app or through your website. And it actually made it all the way up to the Supreme Court when Domino's tried to get them to intervene. And you want to know what the Supreme Court has said? That is a valid lawsuit. Now, that's not true in Jesus' day. If you were blind, there was no federal funding. If you were blind, there was no school you could send your child to to learn. If you were blind, you had no money to take anybody to court for mistreatment. As a matter of fact, when you look at Matthew and Luke, we learn two other things about this, about this story. First, Matthew tells us that it wasn't just one blind beggar. He actually says it was two of them. And then Luke tells us that when they saw Jesus, guess where the blind man was? He was not in the front of the crowd hearing Jesus. You want to know where the blind man was in Luke's gospel? He was in the back so that all the people who could see and hear, you know where they were? They were up close. It was, it, I, is that a picture? That is a picture of what it meant to be blind in Jesus' day. You had to travel with other people because no one would look out for you. And you were a second-class citizen. You were at the back of the line. Now, why all of that? Because this man was blind. And his blindness was a barrier. And what you start to see is God specializes in giving bridges to those who are broken. This man would not have been at the top of society. He would have been at the bottom of the bucket. And the good news of Jesus Christ says God specializes in putting a bridge right there at the bottom 
so that those at the bottom can see. Didn't Jesus say that many who are first will go to the back and many who are in the back will come to the front? That's what's happening in the passage, that God has been doing something in this man's blindness where his heart has been being softened by the Holy Spirit so that even though his life has been hard, even though he's been playing in the rear, even though he's at the bottom of the bucket, that is not a barrier for true faith. God specializes in working through those at the bottom. And so I asked us all this morning, how do you interpret your suffering? How do you interpret when life is hard? How do you interpret when your vision starts to fail? How do you interpret when your mind starts to forget? How do you interpret when your body starts to ache? How do you interpret when you lose your jobs? How do you interpret when you fall and, and, and you feel weak? How do you interpret when you fail and you feel the overwhelming weight of your sin? How do you interpret it? Do you say, I just got to get up and get my strength back? Or do you take the posture of, I serve a God. I serve a God who is slowing me down that I might see. I serve a God who is making my bones ache so that I desire this new body he's given. I serve a God that though my mind is wasting away, he's specializing in remembering me even when I forget. How do you interpret when you hit rock bottom in life? Do you think a bridge can be right there? You see, the song we just sang, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, might seek more earnestly his face. Instead, he made me feel the e hidden evils of my heart, and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Why? from self and pride to set thee free and to break all schemes of earthly joy that thou might find your all in me. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he had visions and dreams, it says a, a messenger was sent to torment him, a thorn in his flesh. And he says, Lord, take it away, take it away. And he says to keep you from getting inflated, from getting puffed up, I'm giving you a thorn, Paul. And that thorn's going to put you back at the bottom. And God says, my power is made perfect, not in your strength, Paul. My power is made perfect. And your weakness. This man is weak and frail and life is hard and God has softened his heart. There's a bridge 
at the bottom that can lead us to faith. The second thing we see in our passage is that desiring mercy and not money is the essence of faith. That it's no secret. He's not just blind, and that would have unleashed this whole different way of living that would have been difficult. But Mark also tells us that he's a beggar. They go hand in hand. And it's no secret, right? If you grow up begging, then you kind of get good at it. Right? I mean, have you ever noticed that panhandlers, they know where to go. They know County Line Road, y'all out here spending money, and why don't I show you a sign? to? I know where you're going to be, right? That they know when to ask. They know what city to go to. They know what season of the year where people are more generous. That when you do this for a living, you learn the tricks of the trade. And here is what's obvious in this passage. This man's mama and daddy didn't raise no fool. He's learned something else. Did you catch what he called Jesus? He hears that this is Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as he hears that this Jesus of Nazareth is in Jericho, what does he say? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that is not an arbitrary name he's pulling out of the sky. This man's daddy or mama or somebody has been reading the Bible to him. He knows 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord comes to David and says, you will always have a son on the throne and his kingdom will know no end, right? And so all of a sudden you get this guy who, who can't physically see, but he's not pulling this title out of the air. It reads as if this son of Timaeus has been waiting on the son of David. It reads as if his parents know the messianic hope. They know that when the son of David comes, the blind will see and the lame will leap and people will be called out of darkness into light. And so this blind man who can't physically see He's been hearing something about this Jesus of Nazareth and everything he's been doing. And he is drawing, he is connecting the dots that this Jesus of Nazareth, this is the son of David that's been promised. And he says, I will not let any of you tell me otherwise. He screams it two times in the row. And here is what's absolutely beautiful. Did you notice the first thing he asks of this son of David? He says, son of David, can you give me some mercy? Can you give me mercy? Do you know how countercultural this is? For a beggar 
who's used to begging, who's in Jericho, the wealthy city, to get money, to all of a sudden hear that the son of David is there, and you know what's on his sign? He, when he sees the son of David, he's not holding up a sign for money. He's holding up a sign for mercy. Do you know how impossible that is? I guarantee you, you will not see one single person standing and asking for mercy. Why? Because when we're in the bottom, you know what we think we need most? To be at the top. You remember James and John who asked Jesus, can we be at your right hand and your left? Why? They felt themselves going to the bottom. They felt that they were going to be eclipsed by the other disciples and that they would fall into forgetfulness and be forgotten. And when they were put at the bottom, you know what they asked Jesus for? Can you put us back at the top? And do you hear what the beggar is asking for? I'm at the bottom, and I don't need to be at the top. I need mercy. I need you. I need you to treat me as though I don't deserve it. I need you to be gracious to me. He needs that more than anything. Did you notice what it did to Jesus? Look at verse 49 and 50. This guy screams this out twice. And then look at verse 50. And throwing, no, verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. You, you get the image that Jesus got the crowd and his disciples and they are 18 miles away from Jerusalem and he hears, son of David, have mercy, and your Savior stops in his tracks. And he turns. Why would Jesus stop when he hears those two things join together? So there's a show. It's called Person of Interest. Any of you watched it? Okay, I see a few hands. So uh, Barry and Ellen McKay uh, kind of put us onto that show. So if something is wrong with it, you kind of take that up with them, right? <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's a good show. Um, it's about this man who was his former Navy SEAL or somebody, right? And he has been in the field, and he knows everything about war, about fighting, about combat. Think about, like, martial arts with MMA. I mean, this guy's the real deal. And he comes off of the field, and he starts to work for this uh, wealthy guy who has come up with this computer algorithm that allows him to predict when crimes are about to happen. And so they work together. They identify one or two people who might be about to get killed. And then this guy, who's this former military dude, he knows who the person is, and he kind of gets involved in helping the crime not happen. And so fast forward to this one show where there's this evil guy, this big, big guy. He's an evil guy. He's kidnapped three people, and three people are kind of tied up over here, and he's about to kill them. 
and he comes out and he has this, this Belgian Malinois. Am I saying, am I saying that, that right, Brandon? Belgian Malinois. It's like this, it looks like a German shepherd, but it's like a, 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 a really intimidating dog. And he has this dog, and this dog is kind of on this leash, and, and he's, about to, he's about to sick this dog on the people. And in comes the man named John. So John walks in by himself, and he, this guy has the three people tied up with the dog, plus some of his goons over here. And he's like, who are you, and what are you about to do? And John says, oh, is that your dog? He says, yeah, well, I stole him. And he says, well, I bet you don't know that I know the three trainers in the world who train that dog. And he said, I bet you don't know that that dog was trained with Dutch commands. And the guy's like, what? And so then John, he utters these, and so this dog is like vicious and barking and is ready to get attacked. And then John utters these words that no one knows, like no one knows them. And all of a sudden, this vicious dog gets on the ground. And it just kind of bows right there. And his gaze is locked on John. And then John utters two more words. And then this dog turns on the big guy. And John is able to kind of save all the people. And he walks out. And then he does this whistle. And this dog comes out and follows him. And he makes him his pet. What happened in that room? That dog knew some words that meant something. And no one in the room knew those words. No one in that room were uttering those words. But when that dog heard those words, he sprung into allegiance. Now look, I'm not comparing Jesus to the dog, okay? But the case I do want to make to you, Jesus knew those words. He knew that he was the son of David. He knew that. That was a part of his identity. And you want to know what else Jesus knew? He knew that God is a God who is rich in mercy. Jesus was there in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, when they deserved the double instant death on spot. And he saw the Father clothe them. He was there when Noah got drunk. And he saw the Father still treat him with compassion. He was there when Abraham lied, not once but twice, and he still saw that the promise to be a father to the nations would still come through Abraham. He was there when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. When God fed them years later, before the famine, when the famine came, Jesus saw it when God erected the tabernacle and the temple. And in the holiest of holies, there was something called the mercy seat where the high priest went in once a year and he offered atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. Jesus knew mercy. 
And so when he sees and hears these two words butted together in a crowd of noise, in a crowd where no one was calling him son of David, in a crowd where no one was asking for mercy, Jesus hears these words and it arrested his affection. It captured his attention. It stopped him in his tracks. And he moves towards the man who said it. Do you believe this, Redeemer? That real faith desires mercy more than money. We long for God to treat us better than we deserve. We marvel in it. We make much of it. And here's the thing about mercy. It's free for us, and it's always costly. Always costly. The mercy seat. Why could Israel, why could the high priest enter into the holies of holies? Because someone had to die. The animal had to die. What about the parable when this man has this lavish debt? We can call it a million dollars. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man, this God who cancels this million dollar debt. And guess what? We get to go all free. But who loses in that deal? Somebody loses a million dollars that day. You know where Jesus is? He's in Jericho, 18 miles from Jerusalem. The elevation in Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level. The elevation in Jericho, 800 feet below sea level. And these 18 miles, there was a stretch of 18 miles that was called the bloody ascent. It's why Jesus did the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember when he said the robbers came and they beat him to death? It was a real place with darkness and change in elevation. It's where robbers would rob. And here is the good news. Jesus is telling us, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm not just going to pass through the bloody ascent. I'm going to ascend to the cross and no man is going to kill me. The Father is going to pour out his unmitigated wrath upon me. He is going to beat me. I will be mocked and scoffed. I will receive no mercy so that you and have it. That's what this man wants. He wants mercy. This is why we make much of mercy. It desire, we desire mercy 
more than anything. I was with a family out to lunch last Sunday. And the sweetest time of our fellowship was when this husband and this wife, they looked at us and said, you never know that Jesus is all you have until he puts you in places where you realize that he's all you need. And they were talking about just how they value mercy from the throne more than each other, more than their jobs, more than their health, more than anything else. That's what I want for me and for you. The next thing we see in the passage is that true faith evidences itself with real works. That James tells us that faith without works is dead. Now, I'm not saying that we work for, right, something. No, faith is a gift of God. But what James would say to us is that true saving faith is always followed by works that accompany it. And you know what James does? And it's beautiful in his passage. He puts two people up before us. The first person he puts up is Abraham. He says, Abraham showed us his faith by his works, even being willing to offer up his own son. And you want to know what other person James puts up in that passage? He puts Rahab, another citizen of Jericho. It says that woman from Jericho showed her faith by being willing to hide the spies. You see what James is saying? Saving and true faith has works accompanying it. And you see this in the passage. This man's faith, first and foremost, is public. Did you catch how many times? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And the crowds, they're trying to make him be quiet. And he says it again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. In other words, he is going all out public with what's going on right in here. It's one of the reasons Paul says, confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There is something in the scriptures that would say that true faith is public. It's one of the reasons we just publicly confess our faith. This is what we believe. This is what we aspire to believe. And we are not ashamed to say it to a neighbor, to an enemy. We want to make sure that God Almighty hears praise from the lips of his people. But did you also notice that this man's faith is a pursuing faith? That only Mark says what happens in this passage. Mark actually tells us what happened. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And the man threw off his cloak and he sprang up and he came to Jesus. That might seem incidental to us. But one scholar says this, the cloak that he leaves behind is not much. 
but it is his only worldly possession and a necessity. The cloak would have been placed before him to collect money by day, and this same cloak would have been his source of warmth by night. This poor man will have no encumbrances in following Jesus. Isn't this completely opposite from the rich young ruler who had a ton of possessions and he came to Jesus and because his possessions had his heart, he walked away from Jesus and now you have this poor blind beggar who has no possessions but this little cloak and he leaves even that behind to go get Jesus? Is that not a picture? And he doesn't just leave his cloak behind. The text actually says, look at it in verse 52. He says, immediately he recovered his sight and he followed Jesus on the way. He didn't just leave his cloak behind. He left Jericho behind in order to be with Jesus. Isn't that a picture of faith? Jesus becomes more precious. Kelly just prayed it. More precious than our homes. More precious than our spouses. More precious than our money. More precious than our children. More precious than our vocations. Could it be that there might come a day when we're called to part with any of that. That there are people in our world who are parting with all of that, their own life and their families and their safety and their security. And because they refuse to bow the knee to Baal, because they refuse not to speak evil against their God and king, they're beheaded and they're, be and they're persecuted. And you know what? It's a picture of true faith, true faith that will count Jesus and mercy from him as more precious than every single thing on the planet. And that's what this poor blind man is doing. He says, Jesus, I want you. And I will follow you wherever you take me. And you're worth it. That's what I want. How do we get that? When you realize that your God and King, he went all public for you. He was not crucified on a back alley that no one could see. He went all out public, even high enough on a cross, and he was beaten and he was stripped naked. And the scriptures say this, he is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and his sisters. The scriptures say when he returned in glory, it's going to be a wedding. And how much more public can you get with affection for someone than going before myriads and thousands and ten thousands and wedding yourself to them and saying, 
I love you. You're mine now and forever. Your Savior has gone all out public with his affection for his people. And your Savior gave up everything to get you. He left the right hand of the Father. And he came and he paid for mercy with everything he had, even his own life. When we understand that our Savior is public, is unashamed of us, we can be unashamed of the gospel. When we understand that our Savior gave up every single thing to get us, then we can hold to these single things loosely because he is infinitely better than every single thing we could ever imagine that we could obtain on this earth. He is better. This man teaches us. The last thing he shows us about faith is the re a reward of faith is the receiving of good things lost. One of the rewards of faith, good things lost will be restored. Why am I saying that? This man in our passage is living in a broken world and his blindness is on account of the fall. That as God originally designed this earth to be, there is no sickness, there is no sorrow, there is no death, there is no blindness, there is no muteness, there is no lameness. That all of these things are a part of the broken world we live in. And yet, Isaiah chapter 35 says this, when the Lord's servant comes in power, weak hands will be made firm. Those with anxious hearts shall be made strong. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the mute tongues will sing for joy. A highway of holiness will be there and unclean will not enter. There is no such thing as a lion or a ravenous beast. The redeemed shall walk there in peace. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and sorrow and sighing shall flee and be no more. You got to understand that when Jesus comes back in all of his glory, those who are deaf, Jesus says they will hear. And those who are blind, Jesus says they will see. And here's the thing, it's not just spiritual blindness. See, we make the mistake to think that this passage is only about spiritual things. No, this man was really blind and this man really got his sight back. And I want to make the case to you that this is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is bringing to bear. When Jesus comes back in his glory, there is no such thing as lameness in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes back in his glory, there is no such thing as Down syndrome in the new heavens and the new earth. When he comes back in his glory, there is no such thing as blindness in the new heavens and the new earth. When he comes back in, his new, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no such thing as dementia. 
that, that Isaiah says all those things that plague God's people now, they will be remembered no more. And what Jesus does in this passage, he says, I know where everything is going. And since I'm God in the flesh, and since I'm going to do this new thing in the future, it is absolutely no problem for me to give you your sight right now, player. Open your eyes and see me. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus actually asked a man. He says, what is it that you want? Now that I know that you desire mercy more than what I give you, now that you're my son or my daughter, what does it feel like to hear God say that to you? What do you want me to do? Didn't Jesus say you have not because you ask not? What does it mean for Jesus to hold you by your face? What do you want? I know you love me and I have your heart. I've taken care of your soul. But what do you want? Do you think about the new heavens and the new earth that way? That there are things in your life that are broken right now? I know some of you struggle with same-sex attraction. And it's hard. And you wake up and every day is a fight. I know some of you struggle with depression. And you wake up and every day it's a fight. I know some of you have medical conditions that doctors can't treat. And it's a fight. And I know some of you struggle with addiction, this improper relationship with chemicals or substances or people, right? What does it feel like for your Savior to tell you one day you will not struggle like this? One day I'm taking it all away. One day it will not be a burden to get out of the bed. One day you will have proper, you will relate to things and people in the way that I intended. What will go on your list? This blind man wanted sight. But what do you want? What do you long for? That you can't wait to see Jesus make new. If it's biblical, he's going to give you every ounce of it. May we believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you, and we turn our hearts to the table now where we get a glimpse of sight. Father, I pray that if we don't have faith this hour, you'd give it. I pray that if we are those who do believe that you would strengthen it. Would you do this for your glory and your honor? In Christ's name, amen.